2: Hi, I'm Jamie Buss and I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the supplements that will help you age in the home with nutraceutical formulator, Dr. Gordon Chang. We'll learn the importance of improving vagal tone for better overall health with Dr. Barb Warger, ND. We'll discover how to best prepare for the coming wave of COVID with Dr. Marc-André Langlois. And lastly, we'll find out about fitness and support of women's heart health with researcher Dr. Jennifer Reed. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Sepsis is a life-threatening medical emergency that occurs when an infection causes a chain reaction throughout the body that can lead to the failure of multiple organs in rapid succession. In the United States, about 350,000 people die from sepsis each year, making proper diagnosis a matter of life-or-death importance. When a patient who is at higher risk for sepsis, typically older adults and people with chronic health conditions like kidney disease or cancer, enters a hospital through the emergency department... Doctors screen them for sepsis. Currently, there's no test that can definitively diagnose sepsis, so doctors employ judgment to identify the combination of infection and inflammation associated with the condition. A new test created by researchers at Penn State characterizes changes in a patient's white blood cells to provide a rapid evaluation of whether the patient is at high risk of sepsis. A receding hairline is a total loss of hair from the crown, and ultimately, the classical horseshoe-shaped pattern of baldness. Previous research into male pattern hair loss, also termed androgenetic alopecia, has implicated multiple common genetic variants. Human geneticists from the University Hospital of Bonn and the Transdisciplinary Research Unit of the University of Bonn have now performed a systematic investigation of the extent to which rare genetic variants may also contribute to this disorder. The analysis identified five significantly associated genes and further corroborated genes implicated in previous research. The results have now been published in the scientific journal Nature Communications. Engineers at MIT and in China are aiming to turn seawater into drinking water with completely passive device that is inspired by the ocean and powered by the sun. In a paper appearing in the journal Joule, the team outlines the design for a new solar desalination system that takes in salt water and heats it with natural sunlight. The configuration of the device allows water to circulate in swirling eddies in a matter similar to much larger thermohylene circulation of the ocean. This circulation, combined with the sun's heat, drives water to evaporate, leaving salt behind. The resulting water vapor can then be condensed and collected as pure, drinkable water. In the meantime, the leftover salt continues to circulate through and out of the device, rather than accumulating and clogging the system. The new system has a higher water production rate and a higher salt rejection rate than all other passive solar desalination concepts currently being tested. The researchers estimate that if the system could be scaled up to the size of a small suitcase, it could produce about 4 to 6 liters of drinking water per hour and last several years before requiring replacement parts. At this scale and performance, the system could produce drinking water at a rate and price that is cheaper than tap water. I'll be joined by Dr. Gordon Chang in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a Ph.D. in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular guest on the show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you?
0: Very good. Thank you, Jamie. How have you been? Good?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, some interesting things in the news that are upsetting but otherwise good. I have this plan You know, I've been I've been in health and wellness for a long time, and I've kind of decided, you know, what I'd like my future to be. You know, we we never know, but I'm of the view that it would be great if I could live my life in my home as I get older. In other words, I want to avoid even condominiums. I don't want to do I want to do the retirement facility route, and hopefully, keep out of hospitals as I get older. And I'm trying to do everything I can in order to facilitate that. And I'm hoping you can help us with some tips today on some ideas of things that everybody can do so that if they want to live in the home as they age, they can do that too. What do you think?
0: For sure. We can give that a try. Now, one of the things, you know, I've been doing this, oh, we've been in business now for, what, 30-something odd years, okay? Mm -hmm. And invariably, everybody always asks, what supplements should I take to stay healthy? And I would always say to them, well, it depends, And that's a kiss of death. Nobody wants to hear it. It depends. Everybody (laughs) wants to say, wave the magic wand, take the magic pill, and you'll live healthy forever and ever and ever. Right. But I always say it depends because everybody's different, unfortunately. Right. But one thing I will say, before we even go down the supplement route, I always say to everybody, get exercise. Yeah. Do some exercise. That is the one thing in all my years. That I can say that has made people live happier, healthier, etc. Yeah, there's aches and pains associated with exercise, but you know what? For overall health and well-being, exercise seems to be the magic bullet. Right, right. And I always say to people to watch what you eat, diet. But I do know there are people who eat very well and they still have issues with health and you know sometimes it's the genes you're born with so that's where i want to start off my conversation with this there really is no magic boots but after having said that there are a few things that we should look into okay i am one of those people who believe in the free radical theory of disease what that means is that all disease and etc is either initiated by free radicals or potentiated by free radicals meaning that it makes it worse right right i don't know how many people have heard of the inflammation diet the anti-inflammatory diet well the anti-inflammatory diet is also based on the fact that a lot there's inflammation going on in the body at all times subclinical inflammation Right. by subclinical, I mean you know when people think of inflammation, they think of oh it 's throbbing pain oh it 's swollen or oh, it 's hot, etc That is clinical inflammation you can see it visually subclinical means that you don 't see it right you know like for example, when people talk about cardiovascular disease and how you, you you get plaques and so on forming in your blood vessels, well, that process is initiated by an inflammation at the level of the arteries at the blood vessel level. And it goes like this, there's a little inflammation, it damaged the lining of the the blood vessels, which is the endothelial layer, and that inflammation then causes more white cells to come to that area, then that roughens the the, um, endothelial layer, and then cholesterol comes by, sticks to it, right? And then calcium comes by, sticks to it, and eventually you get a plaque. But it's all initiated by an inflammatory response. Right. 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 Hence the term, hence everybody these days are talking about the anti-inflammatory diet. Right. Uh, It seems to be the inflammation is happening all over at a subclinical level. So I'm one of those people who believe in the subclinical. I'm sorry, the anti-inflammatory diet.
2: So what is the anti-inflammatory diet? The
0: anti-inflammatory diet. Lots of fruits and vegetables. Right. Right. Fruits with you know with a lot of color. So berries. You know anthocyanidin. So you know you get eat grapes. And I know people don't like to eat the skin with the grapes, but you know what? A lot of that antioxidant activity is in the grape skin, right? Any kind of thing with a lot of color. Even oranges are great for those things. Mm -hmm. But I also know that, unfortunately, let's say you eat an apple. I have yet to see people sit down and eat three apples in one go. Usually, if they get half an apple down, they're laughing, right? Yep. So it's basically volume. and This is where supplementation comes in. If you can get some antioxidants into you on a regular basis, right, antioxidants are good in that you can get, it's in a concentrated form. So you can get higher doses of antioxidants into you with less volume to fill you up.
2: Okay, so what are the supplements that contain these antioxidants?
0: Antioxidants is not one single ingredient. Lots of different things are antioxidants. Vitamin C is an antioxidant. Vitamin E is an antioxidant. Pine bark extract, quercetin, rutin, turmeric, all those things are antioxidants. But one of the things I tell people about antioxidants Every single antioxidant known to man has anti-inflammatory effects. Right. Okay? But not every single anti-inflammatory is an antioxidant. Okay. Right? Because the inflammation, the inflammation pathway or the inflammation process is a very complex process and it's not only one, one pathway for inflammation to get inflamed tissue, okay? But I, I'll focus on the antioxidant pathways because one of the things is that if, if free radicals come and attack your tissue, right? It damages the tissue. Once it damages some of the tissue, the white cells come in, right? To, to help fight off the effects of the damage, right? And that in itself causes a cascade response. And what you have to do with the antioxidant is to dampen that cascade response. And you can only dampen it if the antioxidants are kicking around, right? Mm-hmm. And I know people say, well, there's so many different antioxidants out there. Which one should I take? Which one shouldn't I not take? Right. The problem with it is there's no one magic antioxidant, right? And I know there are people who say, oh, pine bark is the cat's meal or grapeseed extract is a cat's meal. And that's all you need. no. That is not all you need. Like vitamin C is also an antioxidant, but I'll guarantee you, nobody out there will tell you, you just take vitamin C as an antioxidant. You don't need to take any other antioxidant. No. It's like saying, I eat fruits and vegetables, but the only fruit I'm eating is oranges, and I'm not eating any other fruits or vegetables. The only one I'm going to eat is peppers and so on. I'm not eating anything else. You need a wide variety of it. And the reason you need a wide variety is because Not every single antioxidant is going to stop or what we call quench every single free radical. Okay, So there's a a hierarchy of effects. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we live in a world where there's so many different free radicals floating around that we can't say, okay, we're only going to see this type of free radical in my life, so all I need is this antioxidant. No. You see all different types, so you need a wide variety of it.
2: So that's sort of the the process in theory, and those are your recommendations. If the goal is to get antioxidants in the body from different sources, and your message seems to be supplementation is probably going to be necessary because we typically don't eat enough fruits and vegetables to do it through our diet. If somebody wanted to get like a broad range of antioxidants, what should they take?
0: You can go out there and buy a bottle of grapeseed, a bottle of pine bark, a bottle of lycopene, a bottle of lutein, and before you say Bob's your uncle, you're looking at you know fifteen, twenty different antioxidants to hold in your hand. Right, right. In, in all fairness to people, I say when I look at that, I say we can't. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Literally cannot eat all of those in one, one going. Because if you do that, the pills that they come in, the shells that they come become a significant part of your diet. Nobody wants that, right? So what, what I would suggest, I mean, Omega Alpha makes a product called Super Antioxid, which has eight different antioxidants all in one pill, right, and it's in significant quantities that's, that will do the job. So it has things like lutein, lycopenes, pine bark, grape seed extract, all, all the key major ones. Mm-hmm. Right, you also can supplement some of that with vitamin c vitamin E, right, and also you know so that will look after the antioxidant side of the business, right? okay mm-hmm. but one of the things that I also talk to people about is protein intake, yeah, as we get older and I say, we because I'm getting this too, I laughingly say to everybody you know. Back in the day when I was younger, I walk into a restaurant, a buffet restaurant, the, man, the owner sees me, he starts to cry. Because <laughs> he knows I'm going to eat him out of house and home. Right. right. And he knows he's going to lose money. Yep. These days I go in, the owner loves it.
2: They roll out the red carpet <laughs> for you. Yeah, We're
0: going to make money on this boy. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> but the reason I bring that up is because as we get older, we don't eat the same amount.
2: It's
1: true.
0: We eat less protein. Right. As we get older. But unfortunately, as we get older, we need protein because every single antibody your body makes is made from protein. It's made from amino acids, which you get from protein. Right. So you need protein. All your muscle functions all, all the building of muscles needs protein. Almost everything in your body needs protein. So you have to get that protein from somewhere. But if your intake is getting less. Right. And your protein needs are changing and increasing. You need to get it from somewhere. Right Now, I would say to you, go eat a steak. But the problem with a steak is that it's probably about what? I think it's about 18% protein or so. I think it's less than that, 10%, if I remember correctly. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in order to get 100 grams of protein into you, you've got to take one kilogram of steak. Nobody eats one kilogram of steak. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. I know I can't eat, but my younger, my son might be able to chew down a one kilogram of protein, but I know if he eats that, he isn't eating for the rest of the day. For sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult to get that quantity of protein into you. So one of the ways that people increase their protein intake is you can eat eggs, Yep. right? An easier way, right? But you, you can also get protein from things like whey protein, milk protein, etc. And that's probably one of the most efficient ways of getting it into you. But by the same token, I don't want people to go nuts and say, oh, that's my only source of protein, right? Because usually from... From protein from jars and so from milk protein, et cetera, or from whey protein you 're looking at probably about twenty grams of protein per scoop, mm-hmm. and you make that into a milkshake, get twenty grams into you, right, and most of us can drink two or three shakes a day, right quite easily, yep, and another thing I should want to talk about is omega three fatty acid, okay right? mm-hmm. for the longest while, everybody was avoiding fat like crazy. everybody thought fat was bad for you for the longest while and and I still hear about that. Speaking to some of the people in the, the older generation, especially. But they don't realize fat is very important. Every single cell of your body consists of fat. okay? So, whether you like it or not, you need fat in your diet. And there's a constant, um, because your cells break down and die and recycle, etc., you need new, some fats coming in. So you need regular fats, but you also need what's called omega-3 fats. And the omega-3 fats are one of those funny things. They're called omega-3s because there's a double bond. Well, this is the chemistry part, but yep. you know people won't bother remembering this. But that double bond in the fatty acid chain makes the fat a lot more flexible. It makes it a much more permeable, right? So because what happens is that you need to get, stuff from outside the cell to inside the cell, right? So if fatty acid chains are more flexible, the stuff is easy, more easier to transport in and vice versa to, because you need to, to kick stuff out from inside the cell to the outside, like what I call waste products to get into the bloodstream to be excreted out. So you need those fatty acids. Secondly, for brain health, etc., those omega-3 acids, right? They're important because they get embedded in the the brain cells. And what the brain cells do then, they function better just because it's more permeable. It's more stuff can get in easier and out easier. What I'm sharing here today is what I call the Reader's Digest version, just because of time constraints.
2: I know. And unfortunately, we are actually out of time. So thank you for coming on the show today and giving us some food for thought on how to stay healthy as we get old.
0: Thank you for having me on again, Jamie.
2: That was Dr. Gordon Chang. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to improve your vagal tone on the tonic. Omtio is back. Omtio is a yogic celebration of the winter solstice, a full day of specially curated and themed yoga classes led by the most dynamic and popular instructors from the top studios in Toronto. Hundreds of yogis from across the GTA will come to partake in this one-of-a-kind yoga experience and practice in unique themed classes nourishing your body and mind at a time of year when we need it the most. Guests can reserve their space online in advance. There'll be music, contests, free giveaways, and special offers for all. A portion of the proceeds from ticket sales will go to the Scott mission. OMTO, December 17th. Save the date. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal. Proudly Canadian and family owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art, ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit newrootsherbal.com.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Dr. Barb Roger is a licensed naturopathic doctor practicing in Toronto. Her clinical focus is in women's health, stress management, and inflammatory conditions. She spends a great deal of time educating individuals on the importance of magnesium and why we all need to add this mineral to our health toolbox. You can find her on Instagram at Dr. Barb Worger, where she shares a wealth of information about magnesium and other topics. Welcome back to the show, Barb. How are you doing? I'm
3: doing great. Thank you. And thank you for having me back.
2: Always a pleasure. So we're going to talk about vagal t- tone, which is something I'm not sure we've covered on the show before. So it's exciting for me. Uh, We've talked about the vagus nerve and its role, but we should probably start there before we get into toning. Okay. So let's give people a little bit of background uh, about the vagus nerve.
3: Absolutely. So the vagus nerve, a lot of people have probably heard a little bit about it, but it's basically our body's super highway. It carries information between our brain and our internal organs, and it controls our responses in times of rest and relaxation. So it's known as the 10th cranial nerve and a lot of us call it the wandering nerve because it kind of comes out of the brain stem and it goes down and it meanders kind of all the way from the brain stem down to the pretty much the anus area. So it's really a long kind of wandering kind of nerve and it actually innervates numerous organs and structures and some of those organs that it includes in its little pathway is heart, digestive system, our respiratory system, the immune system, the endocrine system, and of course, the gut-brain axis.
2: Right. And, and most of the discussions on the show have been about the gut-brain axis, and, and uh-huh. there, there's been so much research lately about it. So the vagus nerve has both sensory and motor branches. Can you explain how these branches work and provide examples of the functions that they regulate in the body?
3: Yeah, for sure. So some nerves only have motor function, some have sensory, and some have both. So the vagus nerve has both. And so the sensory branch of the vagus nerve is going to carry a signal from our body's organ to the brain. And so it serves as like this conduit for information that's going to be related to certain sensations, pain, temperature, touch, anything like that. So an example would be, if you felt like you had a stomach ache or you experience a sensation of fullness, that's the sensory branch of the vagus nerve relaying that information to your brain. Now the motor branch, on the other hand, it carries signals from the brain to the organs. So it's the reverse, it controls their function. So it's gonna regulate a wide range of bodily processes, Everything from heart rate, digestion, breathing, the release of hormones. So it pretty much oversees much of what the organs do and their functions.
2: Okay, so some body parts function perfectly well, and then there's things that we do and things that we don't do that impacts our body that sort of hampers the functions of you know our organs, etc., What impacts the vagal nerve?
3: Like uh, from a reduced kind of perspective?
2: Yeah. So so like what happens to make it less functional?
3: Right. So... There's many things, but probably one of the biggest ones, and obviously some things that you've probably talked a lot about on your show is chronic stress, right? So stress is going to dysregulate the autonomic nervous system, and that includes, of course, the vagus nerve. We also know that inflammation, chronic illness, these kinds of things will impair that function of that nerve Even our mood can actually impair and alter the vagal tone because we're getting more into sympathetic or fight or flight versus the rest and digest. And so that's going to throw out vagal tone. We know also poor sleep can um, cause um, reduced vagal tone. We know that, and it's not even so much that you're not sleeping six to seven, eight hours a night, but if you're constantly waking up through the night, this is a disruption and of course will reduce vagal tone. Aging. Just getting older, we know that vagal tone declines with age, and the efficiency and the responsiveness of the vagus nerve will also um, decrease as we get older. We know medications, and some of them are quite common medications, beta blockers, uh, antibiotics, these kinds of things are going to affect both heart rate, blood pressure, the environment in our gut microbiome, and those are going to influence vagal uh, nerve function as well.
2: Okay. So I guess we should contextualize this. You know, people, I think, need to understand what the advantages are of having a good vagal tone. So why is it important? How does it impact our daily lives to have a good vagal tone?
3: Right. So maybe we should just define what vagal tone is yeah. at this point. Yeah, for sure. Um, so vagal tone really refers to the strength and efficiency of the vagus nerve's activity in regulating that parasympathetic nervous system, so that rest and digest response. And so what that means is that when vagal tone is high, then that rest and digest response or that parasympathetic nervous system is functioning effectively to calm the body, like reduce stress, slow the heart rate, promote relaxation, all of those things. Now, when vagal tone is low, it can lead to more of an overactive sympathetic response. So this is more associated with that fight or flight response. So here we see people with chronic stress, we see inflammation, we see immune dysfunction, those kinds of things. And that is kind of how we separate low and high vagal tone or good and bad vagal tone. But it really refers to just the efficiency of that nerve in allowing us to be in that parasympathetic nervous system
2: state okay so here's the $64,000 question (laughs) what can we do help us Barb what can we do to improve our vagal tone
3: Perfect question. And it's definitely possible to enhance and strengthen your vagal tone. And most of the things um, that you can do to strengthen that vagal tone is through various lifestyle practices. So you don't need to be buying all kinds of supplements and gadgets and stuff like that. You can improve vagal tone through deep breathing, right? Just getting deeply into your belly, that breath into the belly, focusing on really long exhalations. This is going to activate that relaxation response and stimulate the vagus nerve. Same with mindfulness and meditation. Again, it's allowing for that relaxation to happen. The vagus nerve needs that relaxation response in order to able or be able to get that vagal tone to be increased. Engaging in physical activity, right? This is really important. So things like aerobic exercises, uh, yoga, tai chi, these all can stimulate that vagus nerve and enhance function. And from the research, a lot of it is showing like 30 minutes of exercise is really where it's at when, it, when we're seeing responses to the vagal nerve. Cold exposure, so cold showers, ice baths, splashing cold water on your face, any of those things are really going to activate that vagus nerve. Obviously, starting slow in this department is really important. And then, of course, you can gradually increase duration over time. But that cold exposure is a mini stressor that the body actually responds to really well and is a really good way of improving vagal tone and the higher your vagal tone the more you're able to do ice baths in colder water and stay in for longer um, periods of time We also know laughter is a a really uh, big, powerful tool to activate the vagus nerve. So, you know, we don't laugh enough in in society. We, We tend to be very, you know, stern and, you know, there's a lot of stressors and stuff. And so we forget that laughter is actually a really good way of Enhancing that vagus nerve. And, you know, you really have to have a good belly laugh, though. You can't just smirk. That's not going to cut it. So really having a good belly laugh, watching funny videos or engaging in activities that make you laugh um, can all help. Intermittent fasting is another thing. Um, uh, way we can enhance the vagus t- nerve and this is because we're restricting our eating window this is causing a little minor stressor on the body it's allowing your digestive system to rest and then of course that's going to improve your vagal tone and then things such as singing chanting humming these vocal exercises they also are really good because they stimulate the muscles in the back of the throat and that's kind of they're connected to the vagus nerve. Gargling is also another way. But when you're doing these, you really, like, for instance, the gargling, you really want to be almost gargling to the point where, your eyes are watering.
2: Yeah, I'm, I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna pass on that one. Just so we're <laughs> clear, I mean, I'm sure it works. I believe you. I, I'm just not doing that. Okay, so like, yeah. You had me, all the other ones, I'm in. I'll even sing a song, but I'm not gargling to the point of tearing. Okay, yeah, so okay. The
3: gargling has to be to the point of tearing. This is where they found the. the okay. Biggest benefit.
2: Well, I don't know how they found that out. I don't know who the pioneer was who who came up with that one. Okay, yeah. then.
3: So those are just some of the ways that you can incorporate into your daily routine, right? And you don't need to do all of
2: these, right? Yeah, no, we've already, Barb, we're not doing the gargling, okay? So yes, I I hear you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: Thank you for so much for having me.
2: We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by The Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Dr. Marc-André Langois is a molecular virologist with a background in microbiology and immunology that studies the interplay between retroviruses, like HIV, and host immune defenses. Dr. Lengua is a full professor at the University of Ottawa and the Canada Research Chair in Molecular Virology and Intrinsic Immunity. He's also a member of the College of Royal Society of Canada and the Executive Director of the CIHR Coronavirus Variant Rapid Response Network. With the onset of the current coronavirus pandemic, Dr. Langois has retooled his lab and refocused his research efforts to develop new diagnostic tools, including serological assays, new therapeutics, and plant-derived nasal spray vaccine against SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. That's a mouthful. How are you doing, doctor?
4: I'm good. I'm good.
2: <laughs> so, you know, it's that time of year, as I'm sure you know. All of a sudden, the reports are coming out that COVID is ramping up again it never really left us I think you'll agree with that what is your research telling you what are you hearing?
4: So we were very lucky during the summer because what we saw overall in Canada and around the globe is a massive decrease in COVID-19 in the population but now with the return to school return to work physically in offices what we're seeing is an uptick in the number of cases of COVID-19 and what we're seeing also tracks very carefully with uh, the wastewater data which has been our preferred beacon to predict what will be happening in our offices and our schools so what we're seeing is an increase in the number of uh, sequences that we are picking up in the wastewater and we can expect that in the fall, we will be experiencing a new
2: COVID-19 wave. Okay, so let's talk about the variants. What is the current variant or variants of interest? And what are the symptoms attached to the variants that, that you think are ramping up?
4: So all of the variants that we are tracking now and that are affecting infecting Canadians are all Omicron sublineages. And that is a good news, because we all, um, or at least most of us, have immunity against Omicron. We've either received uh, several vaccines that are effective against Omicron, and some of us have what is called hybrid immunity, because in addition to the vaccines, some of us might have also been infected by one of the Omicron variants. So for the majority of the population, we have immunity against everything that is circulating right now. And that means that there's a much lesser likelihood of developing severe disease. So if we're looking at the Canadian landscape, what are the variants that we're concerned about? What are the ones that are spreading? The dominant variant right now in Canada is called EG5.1.1. And this is a uh, nomicron sublineage, as I said, and is spreading quite rapidly. It's very transmissible. But there is no evidence that this variant is more virulent. So there's no evidence that it causes more severe disease than the previous
2: variants. So it's just getting better at getting around, but it's not inherently more dangerous. So if that's true, what sort of symptomology would you expect with somebody who does get this variant?
4: The symptoms are still very similar to the other variants, fever, fever coughing are the main symptoms some people might experience. Additionally, headaches, muscle aches from that infection. What needs to be monitored is shortness of breath. If you're struggling to breathe, that's when you need to seek out medical assistance. Okay, so given that there's high
2: resistance to this Omicron variant, are there Canadians who are at risk with that strain?
4: Well, certainly, it's all the same demographics that are more at risk now than than before. It's the elderly, it's individuals with an immunocompromised state. It's all these individuals that uh, may not make antibody responses or immune responses as a symptom. Also, the very young are at risk, those that do not have prior immunity to these variants. So these are the the real demographics that are uh, most at risk. But ultimately, the, the variants that are circulating are very transmissible. So we are all at risk of being infected.
2: I recently had an emergency room doctor out of Ottawa, interestingly, who told me that in his experience in dealing with COVID over the years, A lot of the bad outcomes were tied to people who were not necessarily immunocompromised, but who were perhaps like really out of shape or who had diabetes. Is this something that you're tracking or is this something that you're noting?
4: Absolutely. Uh, This is what we call comorbidity. Right, yeah. Being overweight, diabetes, smoking that can uh, injure uh, the lung capacity. So these are definitely other parameters that can affect disease severity if we do get infected. However, many of these uh, comorbidities can be treated or at least very, you know, closely watched. So therefore, those that are at risk, you know, know who who they are and can take additional measures to prevent infection.
2: You know, I find it interesting in the doctors that I've spoken with, they've all sort of said the same thing, that people who are very overweight, otherwise unhealthy, perhaps in prediabetes or diabetes are at extreme risk. And I note that that really isn't the messaging that's coming from the government and it isn't really the messaging that's coming from the companies that are producing the vaccines. And I wonder about that because I think that's pretty important information for somebody who is overweight or, you know, is suffering with diabetes, like there seems to be a disconnect there. Am I wrong? Or or is there something else at play here?
4: I, I think you're right. I think there's not enough emphasis that is put on healthy lifestyles and to uh, monitor one's own health, and and to seek out medical assistance. If we do develop diabetes or high cholesterol, these are all what are named as uh, comorbidities. But the reality is that all of these comorbidities make you more susceptible, not just to COVID-19, but to other infections as well. For sure. Make you more susceptible to influenza, to RSV, and therefore, it should be an overall program or oversight to focus on improving one's health because that will ultimately make you more resilient to infection and link to uh, more favorable outcomes and, and less chronic disease if one actually watches their, their health.
2: What else can we do? Other than living a healthy lifestyle, what can we do that will help us not get COVID?
4: Well, of course, the number one tool we have is the least popular one: is wearing right. a mask. Right. The masks are extremely effective, and they're even more effective if everyone in our surroundings are also masking up. So, if in your workplace there is an outbreak of COVID, if there are several people who are just simply coughing and that not actually be COVID, it could be actually influenza or RSV masking up is the number one tool we have to prevent the infection and then the second tool we have are the booster shots so we hearing the news that there is an updated vaccine coming out from uh, moderna and soon one uh, from pfizer and these booster shots are also excellent tools to uh, prevent infection and to decrease the, the disease severity in fact everyone should consider these vaccines. I know there is some vaccine fatigue, individuals say, well, I got already four shots or five shots, why do I need one more? Well, basically it's up to everyone to decide whether they're interested in having a decreased probability of infection, because that's what a booster shot does. It tops up your antibody levels and makes you uh, more resistant to infection. The vaccines can also reduce disease severity if you do get infected. And it shortens the disease symptoms. So instead of being uh, ill for maybe two weeks, you might be ill for, for a little bit less. And lastly, getting the vaccine significantly decreases the probability of developing chronic symptoms. So we know that in some individuals who, who get infected by COVID-19, they develop chronic symptoms, and we call that long COVID and uh, the data shows that if you do get your vaccine boosters, you decrease that probability of long-term uh, chronic symptoms. So uh, the vaccines are, are are very, very good tools to reduce the, the complications associated with the, uh,
2: the infection. Okay, we have time for one last question. And that is, if somebody, if a, if a listener happens to get COVID, what's the protocol and what treatments are available to help them, if any?
4: Yes. So... There's no longer a, an official protocol for isolation. The, the best way to, to move forward with that is to do a self-assessment. So how severe are my symptoms? So if you are experiencing fever, chills, coughing, first thing, don't go to work. Stay home. Right. Uh, stay home until the symptoms go away. That might take three days. It might take five days. So once you no longer have fever, don't go to work if you have fever. That means you have an active infection. So wait till the fever goes away. Wait till the symptoms are improving. And then you can consider coming back to work. That might take three days. It might take five days. It might actually take more. So common sense needs to prevail here. And when you do get infected and you go back to work. Wear a mask. There's still a probability that you can still be infectious, so you don't want to infect your, your coworkers, your colleagues. Wear a mask when you go back to work and you've been infected. And regarding treatments, well, that is a discussion each individual will have with their medical professional. So, so it's not because you get infected that you need to immediately seek out medical advice. If the symptoms are mild, you can just stay home and wait till it improves. If the symptoms are very, very severe, then you can consult with your medical professional and they can offer some options.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
4: It was my pleasure, Jamie. Thank you.
2: That was Dr. Marc-André Langois. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Dr. Jennifer Reed, PhD, is the Program Chair of Cardiac Rehabilitation, a scientist in the Division of Cardiac Prevention and Rehabilitation, and Director of the Exercise Physiology and Cardiovascular Health Laboratory at the University of Ottawa Heart Institute. She's also an Associate Professor in the School of Epidemiology and Public Health in the Faculty of Medicine, and Adjunct Professor in the School of Human Kinetics in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Reed's research is funded, among others, by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. Welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you?
5: I'm excellent this morning. Thank you for having me on your show.
2: So, let's talk about heart health and women specifically. Is heart health a significant issue for women?
5: Absolutely. It is a very significant issue for women. In fact, it is the leading cause of premature death or early death, if you will, in Canadian women. And to put that in a bit of context for you, heart disease and stroke typically kill more than 43,000 Canadian women per year. So, yes, a significant, substantial issue for women in Canada and across the globe as well.
2: Are there aspects to women's heart health that are unique as compared to men?
5: This is a really great question, and one I get quite often, actually. So if we compare a woman and a man who develop heart disease, we do see differences between men and women. So women are typically older when they present with heart disease. They usually have a greater number of comorbidities. And when I say comorbidities, I mean risk factors for cardiovascular disease and other clinical conditions. And these can include physical inactivity, meaning not regularly active. They may be more obese, have higher cholesterol levels and poor mental health, including anxiety and depression. And that leads to a greater mortality risk for females than males with heart disease.
2: When you say that the women are older, why is that? Is it just that their health holds out longer than men or is it just sort of a conflation of those health issues and and probably issues like adult onset diabetes?
5: It's a variety of those factors. It really comes down to when we see women present with heart disease, they're typically older. They typically seek care at a later age as well. And women typically prioritize the health of others before they prioritize the health of their own. We often call them the heart keepers of the family. And for that reason, they will typically be those that are responsible for the care of children, the care of their spouses or partners and other family members. And so when they do often seek care or present with cardiovascular disease risk factors, they're typically older in life. And that compounded by the greater comorbidities I mentioned, that ultimately leads to a greater mortality risk, a risk of death for females than males.
2: Oh, really? I didn't know that.
5: Yes, and I think one of the important things to point out is when I mention these comorbidities or risk factors, 80% of risk factors for cardiovascular disease are modifiable. Now, you cannot modify your age or your genetics, but you can modify health behaviors, primarily physical activity. I typically focus on physical activity given my area of research. But physical activity management, high cholesterol levels, mental health, high blood pressure, diabetes, dysglycemia can all be modifiable and that can substantially lower the risk for women's risk for cardiovascular disease.
2: I read somewhere that there's just a dearth of research on women and heart disease as compared to men and that sort of impacts diagnosis and, and prognosis. Is that correct or, or am I wrong about that?
5: No, you are in fact correct. We've really seen an intensification of research focused on women's heart health in the last few years, and this largely comes from major funding agencies across Canada and across the globe. The Canadian Institutes for Health Research, the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada, these are only two examples that exist within the Canadian context. But these programs have um, invested in funding for women's heart health. And so, again, we've seen this growth in research focused on women's heart health in the last few years. But even when we look across the research that has been conducted and is still being conducted, we still, unfortunately, see an under-representation or an under-treatment, an under-researched, if you will, aspect to women's heart health. You know, there have been a few studies, more than a few studies in the last few years that have actually dug into this specific research question and looked at the representation of of women women and females within health research. And if we specifically look to sport and exercise medicine, given we just celebrated the National uh, Health and Fitness Day for Women last week, We typically see in these areas of research focused on sports and exercise and health that women typically comprise about 35 to 40 percent of participants in research studies compared to men, which typically we see more 60 to 65 percent representation. So as a result of that, the research that we're producing, if women are underrepresented, we're still using a lot of those findings and generalizing it to women and men. So you can imagine if research is done that primarily includes men, but then we apply it to women, it's not the most appropriate fit. It would be very similar to recruiting only older adults for a research trial or primarily older adults and then generalizing those findings to young adolescents. And so that is where there is misalignment, great misalignment in how we are recruiting and including and treating women based on the research that's been conducted to date.
2: Hmm. But we do know some things, and that is uh, exercise is very important for women's health and and specifically for heart health. Why is that so?
1: Well,
5: exercise is, um, well, let me reframe it. What if I told you that there is a pill that can comprehensively manage your aerobic fitness, your blood pressure, blood glucose levels, cholesterol levels, mental health and weight management? What would you say to that?
2: I'd say I don't love pills, but that sounds pretty good.
5: Well, we can use it as a metaphor, but exercise is that. We call it a poly pill, and I hate to use the word pill as well because it engenders a a whole array of thoughts regarding medication, prescription, and complication, if you will. But there is overwhelming evidence of the benefits of exercise for improving heart health and specifically those comorbidities or cardiovascular risk factors that I previously mentioned. But it remains underutilized and even more so by women. For women who've had a cardiovascular event or a cardiovascular procedure, they're traditionally or typically, hopefully, referred to exercise-based rehabilitation. And these are secondary prevention programs. They're multi-component. They're multidisciplinary. And a large component is physical activity and exercise-based rehabilitation. And they are available in programs across the country and beyond. But the referral rates are lower for women their participation rates are then lower for women the completion rates are lower for women and then the improvements in physical activity levels or aerobic capacity aerobic fitness are also lower for women so these are all connected elements where if we refer less women to these programs it directly impacts the outcomes and an important outcome being improving aerobic capacity improving fitness
2: is a lot of that driven by the fact that on average women who suffer from heart issues are older. Is that what's driving the fact that they're they're participating less and finishing less, et cetera?
5: It can be, and I certainly think that competition exists in the literature and clinical practice that if you have certainly perhaps an older, more deconditioned female, if you will, meaning deconditioned, meaning not as physically active, then perhaps the rehabilitation programs that exist are not of interest or appropriate for these older, perhaps deconditioned women. But it, it's interesting. I've been focused on this area of research for over 10, 15 years now, and we've actually started to develop develop more programming that is suited for women, and despite women typically being older that present to rehab, we have started to integrate programs such as high-intensity interval training. You may have heard of this form of training, where you exercise for brief periods of time at a higher intensity and then have recovery periods. And we have had women-specific programming for a few years and are about to launch a much larger trial focused on interval training delivered in a virtual virtual format in your home for women with heart disease. It will be the first in Canada to do so.
2: So I actually, as part of what I do, I do HIT classes. Other than HIT, are there other types of exercise that seem to work for women who have heart issues?
5: Any form of exercise. Okay. And I cannot stress that enough. So maybe I'll break down the importance of why aerobic fitness is yep. a point of discussion many times. So, aerobic fitness is our ability to take in oxygen, to utilize it, and produce energy for movement. That's a simple description, if you will. And at rest, we typically expend one metabolic equivalent. That is 3.5 milliliters of, of oxygen per kilogram of body weight per minute. It can be fairly complex, but it doesn't need to be. And so with every one metabolic equivalent increase, one met increase, we can see substantial reductions in cardiovascular and all cause uh, mortality in men and women with heart disease. So by improving your aerobic fitness, whether it's by one med or two meds or more than that, you substantially reduce your all-cause and cardiovascular disease-specific mortality risk. That is why exercise and physical activity is so very important, because it is directly related to your risk of all-cause and cardiovascular disease-specific mortality risk.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
5: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful opportunity to discuss exercise and its important role in managing women's heart health.
2: Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Dr. Barb Woger, ND, Dr. Marc-Andre Langlois, and Dr. Jennifer Reed. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and